Dan, so glad we were able to meet today. Thanks for coming over. Whoa, what's that? Pretty awesome, right? It's my new FlexiSpot E7 Pro Plus standing desk. Goes from sitting to standing with the push of a button. You know, I've been thinking about getting a desk like that. I have back pain from being in a chair all day, but I feel like they're either cheap and flimsy or crazy expensive. That's why I went with FlexiSpot. This desk is super sturdy, but totally affordable. The base is made of automotive grade carbon steel. Sit on it. Okay. Hey, this is cool. All right, I want in on one of these. Where do I find FlexiSpot? Just go to their website, FlexiSpot.com. And go right now because they're giving an extra $80 off their already low prices. Go to FlexiSpot.com and use code 80OFF to get an extra $80 off the E7 Pro Plus standing desk. Backed by an industry-leading 15-year warranty. Don't wait. This special offer will not last long. Go to FlexiSpot.com and use code 80OFF. That's F-L-E-X-I-S-P-O-T.com. Go to FlexiSpot.com now. Screen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network, and I feel like every time I say the Geek Show Podcast Network, it should have a little George Formby riff behind it, shouldn't it? It's the Geek Show Podcast Network. Yes, that's that's what we need to hear more ukulele. That's our brand. Uh, we are the Geek Show's podcast dedicated to films either starving by or about pop stars. No, the podcast covers such a broad range of genres, both cinematic and musical, from science fiction to documentaries, from country and western to hip-hop. I'm Graham Williamson. I'm a podcaster on the Geek Show's other movie podcast, Director's Lottery. I also write for the British horror magazine, Horrified, and I'm film critic for the Geek Show website. I've been joined this week by Andrew Young, or if you are watching on YouTube, Dr. Claw from Inspector Gadget. <laughs> I, ju- I, I don't know where the shadow comes from. <laughs> uh, it just people... it follows me. It follows me through life. But yeah, you can find me. Uh, I host the podcast Behold where we watch and rank comic book adaptations. Uh, you may also soon be able to find me maybe doing some more stuff with Graham. Indeed, yes, we do have some uh, Director's Lottery episodes planned. Big, big thoughts ahead for that. Uh, but for now, let us go to a 2012 film, which before their current ubiquity, Jesse Plemons and Rami Malek both starred in. It was widely acclaimed to be so unique, so artistically bold and intellectually provocative that it is commonly cited as one of the greatest films of the 21st century. Unfortunately, Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master doesn't have any pop stars in, so we will have to go for the other film they made that year, Battleship, because it's got Rihanna in it. And to be fair, and really this is more a comment against Joaquin Phoenix... I wouldn't believe he could handbrake Turner Battleship. Yes. Yes, there is that. 
Um, this is a film that's displaced so little cultural water that when I searched for it on Amazon to watch it for this podcast, the top like two or three slots were the board game. Yeah, it's because I feel like we had this big cycle of making jokes about there being films based on board games, like fake YouTube trailers for Tetris the movie. Yes. Then someone actually is going to make a film about the board game Battleship. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard <laughs> to about three weeks ago. Remember that time they made a film about Battleship? <laughs> yeah, are you sure? Because to be fair, I watched this film like last night and I'm still not sure it happened. <laughs> yes. I think this is going to be one of those podcasts where to a certain extent we'll just have to like talk our listeners through what happens in it because I don't know if they'll enjoy it, but it'll help me come to terms with it. Going back to the introduction, I'm still not over the fact that Rami Malek is just in a scene. He is. Yes. And, you know, it's, it's a complete nothing part. Jesse Plemons as well is basically, his introductory scene seems to be hinting that he's playing a sort of Forrest Gump character, uh, which then gets forgotten about when they realise that a, a naval battleship fighting aliens is quite a bad place to have a comic relief imbecile. Yeah. I mean... It's strange, though, because that's the one and only example I can think of in this film of an entire character's characterization being very much dependent on whatever scene they're in at that present moment. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Because our hero, Taylor Kitsch, and let's, let's just have a think about how incredible it was that people were trying to make a movie star out of a guy named Taylor Kitsch. Yes, it's almost as amazing as the fact that he has the most Wes Anderson-y of Wes Anderson-y names. Yes. And yet is just the embodiment of bread in a human being. <laughs> yeah. I think that the reason why he never became a star is right there in the film, because he starts off as this kind of slacker with big, long, shaggy hair, and is, is you're still ridiculously cut, still looks like he works out every minute of the day, because it's an action movie, what are you going to do? And then as soon as he gets his Navy regulation haircut, you take about a scene and a half to realise that it's the same guy. Yes, there, there, there was a kind of a brief moment of, why is this small boy in the Navy? <laughs> yeah, he, he was hotly tipped because he was on the show Friday Night Lights, which Peter Berg, the director of this film, uh, was... I'm not sure how involved he was. He was an executive producer of it, definitely. It was based on a film that he'd made. Um, and Taylor Kitsch ended up in this, John Carter of Mars, and Oliver Stone's Savages, like Back to Back, which is the kind of threefer that no career can recover from. It really is. And also, what we can't forget is... Well, I was going to say star-making, but the whole point of Taylor Kitsch is he never had a star-making role. Oh. But remember that one X-Men film where he was Gambit? No. <laughs> I Fair don't. enough. You shouldn't. But no, I was just watching this film. It really hammered home for me why he is actually the ideal casting for Gambit. Because Taylor Kitsch is someone 
who all the creatives involved in his projects really want you, the audience, to believe that he is a cool person. But he just comes off as a bit of a scumbag. <laughs> and that's exactly who the comic book character Gambit is. Because he's introduced to us in this movie in the sort of scene that I, I think will easily win over even the most hard-hearted of audience members as he robs a small convenience store. I mean, in his defence, it is for a very important reason to steal a burrito a for the attractive lady he wants to seduce. A single chicken burrito about which 98% of the dialogue between Taylor Kitsch and his love interest in this film revolves around. I also had a very important like, point that I noticed about this scene. Because mm. when, when Taylor Kitsch's love interest, who I'm pretty sure has a name in this film, <laughs> but... Anyway, she comes into the bar and asks the bartender for a chicken burrito. Mm. And that scene treats it like the bartender is always just being a bit of a stick in the mug and a grumpus not making her an easy-to-do burrito. Mm. But if you look at the, like, the security footage that they use to show Taylor Kitsch breaking into that, that store, yeah, it's midnight when he does that. Yes! That lady walked into a bar at midnight and said, can I have a burrito? So I think the, the lead that they're burying is she's clearly like a pretty hardcore drug addict to be just wandering into bars trying to get a burrito at midnight. She has no concept of night and day anymore. Decades of brutal heroin use have drummed those concepts out of her. I mean, it's really, it's the most charitable explanation for the vacant look in her eyes in every single scene. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. I, mean, I also can't remember a single character name from it, and I'm wondering whether it's because the, the actor's names sound so much like bad action hero names anyway. Yes, I, I can remember one and a half. Okay. I remember that Taylor Kitsch's last name in this is Hopper. Because oh, Alexander yeah. Skarsgård plays his brother, and that character is the incredibly named Stone Hopper. <laughs> How did I miss that? At which point they go into something which is apparently a real naval exercise, but I assumed was made up solely because it is called Rimpack. Rimpack. <laughs> Literally, in my notes, I just have the word RIMPAC in all caps. <laughs> because how do, how do you write an entire film in which multiple characters say the word RIMPAC and you think, yes, this is fine? The thing is about Peter Berg, um, there are a few like interesting facts about him that I'm sure we'll dig into as this goes on, but his, his father was a naval historian, and this drips with absolute like military history bore energy. You can easily imagine someone on set saying, Rimpack, Peter, are you sure? And he would just launch into like a half-hour spiel about the history of the Rimpack exercise and they just go, oh, fine, fuck it, have it your way. But there is there is absolutely nothing like hearing Liam Neeson growl the word Rimpack. Yeah, 
I think it does almost make up for the fact that he at no point yells out the line, you sank my battleship. You've took one of the few people in this film who doesn't have a stupid name and you've made him play a character called Stonehopper. That's... I mean, that's peak bad action movie name, isn't it? Completely, yes, yeah. Um, speaking of peak bad action movie, uh, this was written by John and Eric Hober, who also wrote the Red movies with Bruce Willis and Helen Mirren. Uh, their motivation for having the hero try and rob a convenience store at midnight to get a burrito was because they'd seen this security footage that went viral of a guy trying to rob a convenience store and just sort of falling over and crashing into everything. They thought, oh yeah, people like that. We might put it in our movie. Crucially missing the point that, uh, I mean, I don't remember that viral video, but I'm pretty sure nobody watching it thought, oh, this guy seems cool as hell. I'd love to watch him fight aliens. Yes, also I'm glad to know that, you know, that scene, as much as it was painfully unfunny and dragged out, was also completely unoriginal. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's nice to know. But before this all happens, we've had this pre-credit sequence where a, a bunch of nerds, one of whom's played by Hamish Linklater, who's sort of cornered the market in these roles, and one of them's played by a random English guy, announced that they're sending a new message into space from a kind of name brand sanded off version of SETI that's in Hawaii. And this is the moment that I realized this film was going to be extraordinary because when they turn the satellites on and send out the signal, it sends out like a visible beam of fire into the upper atmosphere Yes, it was. That was one of the three best things in that scene, <laughs> which is that the the scientist saying the line, "And this new planet that we have given the grandiose name of Planet G." <laughs> yes. and, and then one of my favourite bits in any terrible action film which is a scientist explaining to a room full of scientists really basic science facts like if a planet is too close to the sun, it's too hot. But if it's too far away, it's too cold. But this one in the middle is just right. And that's why we call it a Goldilocks planet. It's great because there are loads of characters in the movie who you could explain this to. Like, no one else outside this small room of characters has any kind of a scientific background. The Secretary of Defence is played by the weird little guy from Ali McBeal, for God's sake. Explain it to him. Yes, there, there are so many canonically idiotic characters in this. <laughs> and yet you explain it to the scientists. <laughs> My other favourite thing about that switch-on scene is that it's not just enough that the sort of Arecibo-style telescopes shoot a beam of fire into a satellite. It's that when they do this, they send out like an aftershock, a CGI aftershock. Boom! And you think, how much of Hawaii was levels just to send this message out? It's okay. 
it was worth it for whatever nebulous point this was supposed to be. Which I think, from what I understand, the whole point was just to send a signal to go, hi, aliens. And then also every single scientist is incredibly surprised when, oh my God, aliens responded to a hello message. <laughs> is it a bit like when you follow someone famous on Twitter and then like they actually reply back to you? Maybe, yes, yeah, yeah. The scientists are really just aliens reply guys. But yeah. That again makes a lot more sense than the actual canon of the film. It does, yeah, yeah. Um because once um we've had this pr- sort of precursor scene and once Taylor Kitch has ha- had a deeply amusing attempt to rob a star, uh, his brother Stone Hopper, thank you so much for that. Um, enlists him into the Navy, at which point they go into something which is apparently a real naval exercise, but I assumed was made up solely because it is called RIMPAC. RIMPAC! <laughs> Literally, in my notes, I just have the word RIMPAC in all caps. <laughs> because how do, how do you write an entire film in which multiple characters say the word Rimpack, and you think, yes, this is fine. The thing is about Peter Berg, um, there are a few like interesting facts about him that I'm sure we'll dig into as this goes on, but his, his father was a naval historian, and this drips with absolute like military history bore energy you can easily imagine someone on set saying Rimpack Peter are you sure and he would just launch into like a half hour spiel about the history of the Rimpack exercise and they just go oh, fine fuck it have it your way but there is there is absolutely nothing like hearing Liam Neeson growl the word Rimpack yeah, I think it does almost make up for the fact that he at no point yells out the line, you sank my battleship. <laughs> that was the thing people were most angry about when this came out. As well they should be. Yeah, yeah, I'm completely on their side. Because, I mean, jumping ahead, one of the very, very bizarre things... Wait, 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 Graham. No, we we can't jump ahead because surely... We've got to talk about a lot of setting up things like, you know, Taylor Kitsch, sort of getting to know Navy life and adjusting to it, maybe a bit of backstory with the aliens who are going to show up. We've (laughs) we've got all those kind of scenes to talk about, don't we? (laughs) Yeah, Taylor Kitsch's ascent to the heights of Naval Command happens in like a, a cut. Yep, a cut which I'm pretty sure is just obscuring heavy amounts of nepotism. Yes. <laughs> because how, how does he get promoted to any kind of rank? He's the worst. He's constantly late, gets into fights, doesn't listen to orders. Literally half the plot of this film is that he's about to be scrubbed out the Navy. Why would you put him in command of anything? See, normally an action movie has a scene at the start where the hero demonstrates some sort of skill that will save the day later. And so when they screw up and refuse to act on order uh, because they get results, you big dumb chief, 
then we can at least say, ah, but we saw them do the thing and they're good at that. But the, the, like we say, the whole setup for Taylor Kitsch's character is he's a drunk and a thief. Yes. I mean, I'll, I did have a brief hope that there was going to be a scene where we found out that, like, the alien warship's main power source was some suspiciously burrito-shaped object <laughs> that Taylor Kitsch had to break in and steal. Because no, so as well, they'd spend a lot of time telling Taylor Kitsch, you've got so much potential that you're wasting. He doesn't. What potential? No, he fell through a roof. I would love it if there was a call back to that in the third act where it was like uh, the alien death ray, I think I can get it, and it just cuts to him falling through the roof and slipping over on some alien slime or something. At least do something yes. with it. Yeah, 90% of my notes for this are just me writing down stupid shit that happens. It It really is like... It's just a, a list of problems with this film. So I'll tell you, yeah, that's that's fundamentally the thing with Battleship, mm. is that it wants to be just a big, dumb, fun action movie, but it's just so dumb that, like, every minute you just go, that's not how anything works. There were moments in it which put me in a real nitpicking frame of mood. And I hate that because I like looking at the generalized structure of the film, but I'm being so distracted by things like there's that thing where Taylor Kitsch is playing like a friendly game of football with some other, like uh, some Japanese sailors. And he gets kicked in the face. And right after that, someone is like dubbed in an English football commentator in the background going, he kicked him in the face. That's good, just in case you didn't catch it. I've respected, you know, that this movie has an egalitarian attitude towards other cultures. I've respected having that plot point explained in the language of my people. You're right, you, you might not have understood if they'd used their strange American terms. No, I, I needed some, like, harassed voiceover artist who Peter Berg has clearly said, do a Russell brand to, to just get that across. But yeah, and I think that is the problem with Battleship. Is that I know, obviously, you say, like, oh, no, you don't want to be nitpicky. Just ignore it. Just have fun with it. Mm. But if I am watching a film and I am noticing things like that, yeah, it's a failure of the film, like, properly engage my attention. Yeah, completely agree with that. The other thing about it is that for a film that is obviously meant to be big, dumb fun and, you know, which wants to be defended in that kind of, hey, turn off your brain and enjoy it fashion, there are bits of this that are weirdly poor-faced. Yeah, kind of poor-faced and in a very sort of after-school special type way. Yes, completely. Like, especially with Brooklyn Decker, who, who apparently is also a physiotherapist or something, <laughs> by which I mean, like, she she goes around a bunch of disabled veterans and harasses them into going into walks. Yes. But just her and her whole teaching her friend that, no, just because you've lost your legs doesn't mean you can't do a state-mandated murder. <laughs> yeah. So, so, like, maudlin inspirational... 
It's really weird because you think back to something like Fred Zinnemann's The Men, which was Marlon Brando's first film role. And that was considered really daring at the time because it broached, like just about five, six years after World War II, it broached that subject of veterans coming home with disabilities, with psychological problems. And I just, I cannot imagine Zinnemann and Brandel sitting back and thinking, you know what, if we do our job right, one day this subject will be part of a meaningless subplot in a Hasbro movie. You say that, but something I can absolutely imagine is Marlon Brando saying, okay, and then what if I use my prosthetic leg to choke out an alien? <laughs> yeah, um, Brooklyn Decker's character is, is a physio trainer, which is just one of those Hollywood films, things where someone can, like, can spend their nights going into a pub at midnight asking a fucking burglar to steal a burrito for them and they're still up in the morning to do physical training if i was a disabled veteran and my physical trainer came in with like booze sweats all over still farting out last night's larcenously acquired burrito that would just be my last thread of hope gone right there Yes. God, it's, it's been a long, hard journey learning to walk again. But at least now I can go with my physio trainer to do some molly on the beach. <laughs> hey, every single young character in this film feels like the sort of person who would have tried to go to Fire Festival, right? Oh my God, they would have. <laughs> that's... God, I bet that's why Taylor Kitsch was late in that one scene. <laughs> yes. Sorry I'm late, I was Instagramming a disappointing sandwich. Hey guys, I, I know how we can beat the aliens, we just need to really invest in Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, as we say, Brooklyn Decker is, is training this disabled guy, who is a real-life disabled veteran and who I have to say gives one of the few convincing performances in the movie is coming for a complete non-actor. Yeah, I, I can definitely buy that he is a man who does not want to be there. And I <laughs> yeah. sympathise with that. Yes. So that happens and they just forget about Brooklyn Decker's character for 45 minutes and all that very important burrito-based connection that they were setting up just goes by the wayside. Um, so then we get... Uh, the the fabulous Hopper brothers on board their first destroyer. And it is a destroyer because as the film takes pains to make out, battleships are old and antique and no one cares about them anymore. And by the way, please come and see our film Battleship. Yeah, that's... I mean, I guess it kind of pays off later, but boy, that's an interesting moment to have fairly early in the film. Yeah, it's it's again, it's the fact that Peter Berg is like this military bore and it's like, I don't know, if you really are that passionate about military history and disabled veterans and the World War II generation, have, have you not considered signing a contract 
to remake Tara 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 or something rather than jamming it awkwardly in a film about a board game played by six-year-olds. God, it is. It's such a weird mismatch. <laughs> it really is, yeah. But on board the ship, this is where we meet Rihanna's character, whose name I also cannot remember. Um, let me have a look. Second class technician Cora Rakes. Cora. Um, you know, I, I wanted to say Rake, but then I thought, no, that's not right. That's not a name, Andrew. That's just a word that you've pulled out your mind. Again, forgetting that this is a film with a man named Stone Hopper. Yes. Now, uh, have, you, have you seen Rihanna act in anything else? I'd, I'd argue that I haven't seen Rihanna act in this. <laughs> but no, this, this yeah. was my first exposure to her, to this side of her professional career. Right. <laughs> I'd seen her in Ocean's 8, in which she is, you know, basically on the level of everything else in the film. It is serviceable. It is quite entertaining when you're in the moment and you'll forget about it three seconds after you leave the cinema. And I'd also seen her in her, like, extended cameo in Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, which I think is one of the few bits in that film that actually works. That's maybe, maybe it's just one of those things where because everything else in that film is so weirdly disjointed that it works. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could be comparing her to like Cara Delevingne's Charisma Mountain of a performance and she comes off better in that. But I don't know, even here. Yeah, yeah that's true. It's, it's basically like saying, I think Rihanna does a better job of acting in this than say one of the destroyers <laughs> even here though i have to say she has the one acting moment that really worked for me in after about like when when the battleship comes in which is half an hour before the end of the fucking film what the hell but when they finally get on board the battleship, this character who has been portrayed to as just this absolutely stoic action badass for the whole movie suddenly geeks out over all the old hardware. And it does feel like something she's added because every other plot point, every other character beat in the movie is absolutely relentlessly hammered. And this just sort of switches on in the background somewhere. And for a moment, I thought, holy shit, a character. Actually, yeah, to be fair, because that's the bit where she just kind of like gives the, the big sort of dorky grin at all the, yes. the big battleship guns. And yeah, okay, yeah, I'll admit, I take it back, Rihanna. That, that bit I did like. It's quite weird. Um, she is going through this like lengthy period of musical inactivity. And I've noticed, by the way, you know how everyone said 2016 was like the bleakest year on record? You're, you've remember but those innocent times oh i do that's god we're, we're nostalgic for 2016 <laughs> 
thing is, I don't think we appreciated how bad it was because every single artist who really needs to get their ass in gear and record a new album, apart from Kate Bush, released their most recent album in 2016. Last Radiohead album came out in 2016. Last Rihanna album. Last Frank Ocean album. Last PJ Harvey album. Last David Bowie album, but he has a bit more of an excuse, I guess. Yeah, that... That, I would argue, may be the phrase, pull your finger out, does not apply. Yes. But she is basically like a a full-time person posting on Instagram at the moment, which makes it even more amusing that Peter Berg and Rihanna have apparently reteamed for the upcoming documentary about her career. And you think, is this going to answer the question of what the hell she's doing? I just assume it's one of those kind of John Carpenter things where you realise, oh, wait, I don't have to work anymore. Yeah. Screw creating art. I'm just going to get high and play video games. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, so we'll take opportunity at this pit stop in the otherwise thriller minute straight ahead forward momentum of this carefully worked out plot. Uh, to just talk about Rihanna as a pop star, what are your sort of feelings towards Rihanna, Andrew? It's... I don't want to think of a nicer way to say, like, I don't mind her. Like, she's... <laughs> I guess she's, she's kind of one of those things that you just sort of feel like is sort of maybe a bit of the bedrock of modern music. Mm. Like it's kind of it can sometimes be a bit hard to tell of how like oh I'm hearing a Rihanna song. This is this is enjoyable, but is it enjoyable because I necessarily like Rihanna or just because that is a thing I recognise as being a popular piece of music? Mm, yeah, I mean I've never. Like I will say Umbrella is definitely I would say probably my favourite song of hers that I've heard. Yeah, I'll go with that. I have a soft spot for We Found Love as well, Um, but I haven't really explored the albums. Umbrella is fascinating because it had like two weird side effects. Um, She'd been like, she'd been working away for a couple of years before this with some success. She'd done a, a sort of mixed bag of singles. I think Ponder Replay, I remember enjoying when it came out. I remember thinking, was it Unfaithful, the like stab she had at a big Mariah Carey-style ballad? Jesus, that's bad. That's not a good record. But, you know, finding a feat. Yeah, exactly. She definitely had a, maybe a few false starts before we like, oh, she is like the summer bop. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And the thing about Umbrella is, firstly, in in Britain, which is why I don't think this gets mentioned in her career retrospectives, but in Britain, Umbrella killed guitar music like Stone Dead. If you look at the sales of any indie band, they were riding pretty high until Umbrella happened, and it was just like being a prog rock musician as soon as the Sex Pistols hit big, it just collapses off a cliff as a whole grateful nation thinks, oh, that's what pop sounds like. We don't have to pretend to like the Pigeon Detectives anymore. How dare you? How how (laughs) dare you just disrespect Maximo Park like that? (laughs) Yes. It's very weird, isn't it? Because everyone 
sort of agrees that Britpop as a scene had died out 10 years before that, but there were still loads of bands like Scouting for Girls and The Kooks who were still doing that sort of chirpy knees up indie sing along thing and selling well until like I say Umbrella comes out and everyone just thinks oh thank god thank god for that yeah I feel just think part of that is like because those songs always had kind of a bit of an undertone of irony to them and Umbrella's just like authentically kind of more of a he's just a good bloody song yeah i think so yeah and i mean pop hadn't been completely absent in the early noughties you know four years before umbrella you had crazy in love by beyonce out and that was a massive hit and people said it was a game changer but it came out when there was still like just about enough good music in other genres for it not to become this like species wiping meteor hitting the dinosaurs event that umbrella was yeah yeah crazy in love kind of it chose the path of peace but rihanna's not about that yes right can, can, can someone like do some kind of edit of rihanna in battleship yelling mahala mother fur then cuts <laughs> and then like some big explosion wiping out every single british genetic <laughs> indie rock band <laughs> That would be great. Yes. If, if they could do it in that consciously half-assed way that the internet loves now, where, you know, the they wouldn't even have to change anything. They just have to superimpose text saying, like, scouting for girls, um, the enemy. I'm trying to think of some of those other bands. I can't. They, they were big for a while, and they've gone. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of hard because it's like, how do you pick out specific points of one big gelatinous blob? Yes, yeah. <laughs> the other thing about Umbrella that I think is kind of sociologically interesting is that it was originally written for Britney Spears and it came out as Britney Spears was in the middle of that kind of horrible public breakdown that obviously... I hate talking about stuff like this in symbolic terms, but it is kind of symbolically the end of the turn of the millennium Disney pop dream. And I, I was thinking about what Umbrella would be like if it was sung by Britney Spears, as was originally intended. And I think the main word that came to mind was cute. And that was interesting because I do not think cute is anywhere in Rihanna's wheelhouse. Yeah, maybe, maybe again, that's like part of why it works. Yeah. Is because it is kind of slightly twisting it like that. I think if you had someone whose image was like squeaky clean and family friendly singing, you can stand under my umbrella, Ella, Ella, A, A, it would just be like infantile, tooth rotting stuff. And a lot of Rihanna's songs get made fun of for their like <laughs> lack of lyrical acuity. But I think this is probably why she's a star, because she always sells it so well. Like, I, I remember when S&M came out and everyone was, uh, you know, that's a, a record that whose appeal can be explained by its advertising. Rihanna, S&M, picture of her looking sultry. 
It's like when you look at the lyrics of that, it's a series of very old puns that would be considered naughty by like someone who has a car with a sticker on the back saying powered by bitch dust. But for some reason, when Rihanna sings it, it sounds a, a million percent less mum's net. Yeah. I think it also helps that like it looks they're just hella catchy. There is that, yeah. I think once she kind of learned that the big ballad single is not her forte, she had a very, very high quality control standard for singles. Yeah, I don't feel like just over the course of this conversation, I've come around a lot more on Rihanna. It's funny, isn't it? I, I said very early on, I think it was on the Holy Motors show, that researching pop stars for pop screen often becomes a kind of Stockholm syndrome thing. Um, but I think looking back through Rihanna's career, it took me from someone who hadn't really thought twice about it to someone who thought, you've you've hung on, haven't you? You've gone through some big changes in the music industry and in the celebrity world and in society in general that would finish a lot of people off. But I mean, even the fact that she hasn't released an album for five goddamn years has not dented her drawing power. Yeah, and I mean, still to this day, you say the word umbrella to someone, they are under their breath going to go, Ella, 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 A, A, A. Completely, yeah. It's the kind of hook that never, ever fades away. So... You know, I, I, I kind of, her, her music isn't exactly my thing, but I like her tremendously as someone who's figured the game out to a degree that no one else has. And I think, you know, for all she is not given a character to play here, she is a pretty engaging screen presence in the right kind of project. Oh, that's right. We're talking about the film Battleship. We had a nice break from talking about the film Battleship, but I, I feel it's our duty to go back now. Because <laughs> one of the... This is one of the things, because it's like this script has bits in it where you know that a character beat is meant to go. You know that the burrito thing is meant to make us like Taylor Kitsch. You know it's meant to make us forge a connection like between him and Brooklyn Decker, but you can't work out how. And I can't work out how Rihanna sees Taylor Kitsch going aboard like around his naval duties and she says, you're like a kind of Donald Trump, Mike Tyson hybrid. What, he, he's racist towards himself? What does that even mean? Yeah, it's... I mean, I guess because he's needlessly aggressive and has a fundamental lack of understanding on how to run things. <laughs> it's because he has a bad haircut and wants you demands that you're off in public. I feel like of course, that's you, it. you would have to go through like newspaper archives from 2010 to work out what they meant when they wrote that line. Because 
I feel like the public image of both of those men has changed pretty enormously since then. Yeah, which which is again a big reminder that wow, th- this film is incredibly 2010s, isn't it? Oh God, it is. And because you know, sometimes I'll hear an offhand reference to something coming out 20 years ago, and I'll think, oh God, really? You know the. The Man Who Wasn't There came out 20 years ago, and that makes me feel so old. But when I watch or listen to stuff from the early 2010s, I feel like Indiana Jones digging this shit up. It is. It's like a lost civilization. I don't understand why it has dated so much more than any recent era. I know it's... But also, probably as well, is like everything with the aliens and their spaceships and just going, God, remember when Hollywood was so obsessed with being Transformers? Yes. Remember, remember watching Michael Bay's Transformers and thinking, yeah, that's, that's a formula we need to emulate. Because <laughs> as soon as the aliens turns up, it just becomes painfully like Obama's first term either cinema it's just like a, a series of big beams going up into the sky and dubstep noises, and you have no idea what's going on at any given time. Yeah, because I was going to say we've got most of the way through this podcast and haven't really touched on the main plot. <laughs> but what is the main plot? <laughs> it's like the, the aliens, they, they come to Earth, but they they crash into the satellites and then yes, yeah. they've got a they've got to build a big dome so that they can hack the communications to send a signal. <laughs> but 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 doesn't the communications thing need the, the satellite to send the signal? But they but surely they destroyed the satellites and yeah. And for why? Why are the aliens, Graham? <laughs> why is anything about them? It's one of those things, isn't it, where you sense that there was probably originally an idea that we just see the aliens through the eyes of the human characters, and they are suitably an alien threat. They are unfamiliar and scary and weird, but as soon as the executive notes start coming in, oh, no, these guys need to hook. They need a plan that we can foil, and it it just becomes this mishmash. I was, I was thinking back recently to that first Cloverfield film and how disappointed I was that after all of the, like, ink had been spilled about how this is the first big like monster attacks new york film made after 9 11 and what does that mean when you see the monster in cloverfield it's just a monster it doesn't really have much resonance boy i did not know how lucky i was with that what are are you doubting the effectiveness of weird are they sea urchins (laughs) They've got bristly chins, haven't they? Which makes them adorable. They look so doofy. <laughs> and they're just so silly at everything they do. Like, I I actually did some research and apparently in the novelization of the film Battleship, <laughs> which, my God, is a thing that exists, there's a whole plot with the aliens that they want to come to Earth 
and they need to test humanity's combat abilities or something, which is supposed Cons. to be a very flimsy way of explaining why they don't just immediately kill everyone with their highly advanced weapons. <laughs> yeah. But they're so bad at things. Like there's a bit where one of the aliens breaks onto the destroyer mm. and he's going to destroy it. But then he just sort of like grabs one of the servicemen and is just like, right, I'm going to blow up your ship. So you just, you wait in the corner there and don't <laughs> you do anything to try and stop me. And then in the next, he's like, what? what is hitting me with some kind of metal rod? Who could have foreseen this circumstance? Certainly not I, the highly advanced warrior alien. They've got these little bouncy balls, which again, adorable. And we see like footage from the ball's point of view and it's full of like readouts like in Terminator and it closes in on this little kid playing baseball and assesses him and it like looks into a picture of his heart so it knows where all the vital spots are and then it turns away and looks at the support strut to a motorway and decides to destroy that instead and we're meant to be very impressed by how laser focused this thing is but all that tells me is that this thing can tell the difference between a, a five-year-old child and a gigantic concrete strut like well done how brilliant of you i know like I, I, I assumed there was maybe something like maybe there was supposed to be some kind of subplot of the aliens they're mainly here to subdue the human race so they're going to focus on like structural damage to bring us into heal rather than mm. actually wiping things out which again could have been an interesting plot point. Maybe, may, maybe explain that in the film. <laughs> yes. In fairness, I absolutely believe that the American military would be powerless in the face of a gadget that can tell the difference between a child and a massive concrete block. They have nothing that can match up to that. Yes, it's so much more advanced than their technology. <laughs> maybe once they sort of fine tune it a bit more they can tell the difference between an insurgent training camp and an afghan wedding party <laughs> oh god it's it's horrible but you think that's the deleted ending for this film where like taylor kitch suddenly realizes oh no wait hold on these were all school buses full of orphans <laughs> <laughs> That's why the aliens are the bad guys in this film. They've invented something that can identify an invalid civilian target. <laughs> the military are just like, those bastards, we can't let them get away with this. That's not how you do a proper war. <laughs> so there's this massive alien assault, and then after it, the next scene has this like mournful trumpet playing on the soundtrack, like it's Remembrance Sunday for victims of the alien attack, which made me howl. <laughs> it is. I also like how they do that. And then there's kind of the actual bit at the end of the film where they seem to kind of just forget that there was, well, first of all, the A, humanity has discovered that aliens exist, and yes. B, hundreds of thousands of people have just died. But no time for that when we've got to go pay off the chicken burrito joke again. And it does! It pays off the chicken burrito line at the end! 
Yeah, uh, I also thought they moved on pretty quickly, although to be fair, the death toll of the alien invasion might still have been less than the death toll from switching those radio telescopes on and having them just level the rainforest. That's true. Yeah, maybe maybe that's the whole point, is they're actually, they're just really pleased at you who we can use this alien invasion to cover up the fact that we accidentally destroyed Hawaii. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, I, I feel like that it's hard to really talk about the second half of the film because you are just going to be saying, and then this happens and it's loud and annoying and nothing makes sense. But w were there any moments that particularly stuck out from within this mess? I mean, yes, although full disclosure, I did have to have it pointed out to me because when I actually watched it the first time, I had kind of switched my brain off a little bit. Mm. But the fact that there's this whole elaborate explanation set up of uh, Tadanobu Asano. Oh, yeah, yeah. Kind of explains this whole thing of how actually the Japanese have been secretly monitoring American movements for years using like tsunami buoys to measure water displacement to get ideas of where ships are even when they're invisible to radar mm. and this whole thing is just to set up a scene where they have to pull up a bunch of buoys on a screen so that they can actually play the game battleship <laughs> and dramatically yell out aim at d7 It's weird because in any other situation, you'd think that would be the most ridiculous thing in the film. But as you say, it just it, it's set up in this weirdly boring and fussy way that it gets rid of the inherently hilarious quality. Yeah, it's also it's again one of those nitpicky things. But at the start of this, that scene, they say the problem is that we can't see them and they can't see us. What, why can't they see you, though? Yes. Like, I get that they're advanced alien battleships immune to our primitive radar. The, their main reason for not just immediately exploding you with their magic, like, gravity <laughs> drill bombs is because you are the protagonists and they're not allowed to. Yeah, I've got to say... They can't see us and we can't see them. Sounds pretty much like the neatest way this situation could resolve, if I'm honest. Yeah, I mean, it's a better plan than Taylor Kitchen. Hey, what if we try like another suicide run? <laughs> but this I'm time on sure. like a really old ship that we don't know if it works or <laughs> not. But it's okay, because we have a bunch of old men to help us out. Oh man, that bit where I, I was trying to think, you know, am I annoyed by the military sentimentality in this movie because it's insulting my intelligence or because I'm not American and I don't give a shit about their military? But when they bring out the World War II veterans, I thought, okay, well, here we've got something. World War II veterans are A-OKs, like the least controversial point you can possibly make. And I still just thought, oh, for God's sake, don't put this in your stupid board game movie. Especially as they slow motion walk into the scene. 
Amazing. Yeah, like it's the right stuff or something. God, it really... It's such a bad scene. <laughs> oh, also, again, going back to my point of the aliens just randomly deciding not to kill people. Mm. It's again one of my favourite awful tropes from action films is we are the bad guys. We are like elite combat experts who can kill people instantly. Oh, what's this? Um, a named character in the film. <laughs> well, I'm going to use my deadliest technique on you, grabbing you by the shirt and throwing you to the side. Yes. What? You survived that? Well, better try it again. <laughs> oh no, you survived again. Well, I bet you won't survive it four or five more times. These these aliens haven't seen that security camera footage. They don't know how many times Taylor Kitsch can fall over. Of course, that's it. That's the specialist skill they were setting up, is Taylor Kitsch's incredible ability to just flail around any given space. It's like a top-secret military mission that could have been performed equally well by Mr. Bean. Yes. Amazing. But of course, Berg does take this devastatingly seriously. There was, I had to check this before I did the podcast because I didn't know if I was going mad. Uh, but there was like an interview he did that went viral um, around the time of its release where he was talking to an interviewer from an Israeli magazine and he just started ranting about the threat of a nuclear-armed Iran and goes, you know, are you really Jewish? Have you served in the IDF? Are you a draft dodger? You know, you've got to join the RAF, motherfucker. And I just, I looked up on his Wikipedia page to see about all the amazing military service Peter Berg must have done, but I, I guess it's still classified because they don't have anything about it. Um, but watching that, the first time you just thought, oh my God, this guy's insane. But watching it the second time, I, I just admired the skill with which he took it back round. And he said, a nuclear armed Iran is like the most important issue the world faces right now. Even more important than the film Battleship, which I worked very hard on. <laughs> oh boy. Wow. <laughs> Even more important than the film Battleship. Oh, that's... That's tough, because I, I want to hate him for being a gigantic prick. But I, I kind of have to love him for saying something like that. But I thought of... I, I picked up on that because I'd watched Battleship and I realised that to Peter Berg, this is a continuum. Like, there is no sort of green space between the idea of making a dumb movie about a kid's board game and saying something very sort of serious about our needs to disarm Iran's new supposed nuclear program. It's all the same thing. Disabled veterans and battleship are the same issue. The World War II veterans and battleship are the same issue. He is using this to talk about everything that is dear to him in the context of a movie where Vienna shoots a sort of alien frog thing with a sort of anti-aircraft gun. Again, because the frog thing is too dumb to notice, it's slowly spinning around to target him. 
Well, that's one of the things with making action films set on boats. It goes back to something like Speed 2, where everyone involved clearly thought, okay, we need another runaway vehicle. How about like a, a really fast boat? Yeah, speed boats, they're the thing. And it's like, yeah, but you can't set a movie on them. Any boat that is big enough to set a movie on, like moves slower than an asthmatic snail. And that's the problem this thing keeps running into. And again, they handbrake turn a battleship. They do indeed handbrake turn a battleship. And I don't know whether that should be the end point of this episode or whether I should end it by posing the vitally important question, does Peter Berg know what the song Fortunate Son is about? Yes, I will. That is the point I wanted to end on. Because I, I thought coming into this episode... My, my big jokey criticism was going to be, and I can't believe that Rihanna didn't have some kind of like special forcibly excreted end credits song to go yes. with it. But my God, as, as the first opening bars of Credence Clearwater Revival's famous anti-war anthem to close out two hours of US military propaganda starts up. It, it was beautiful. Breathtaking. I don't think you could have a stupider capper on a really stupid film than that. Because it's just the ultimate. Oh, this song sounds cool. I'm sure we don't need to look into what it actually means most. <laughs> yes. It's, it's about soldiers or something, isn't it? Yeah, that works. I mean, the classic example of this is always born in the USA, which you know, Ronald Reagan used on his re-election campaign before realising what the song was about. But Born in the USA was a song that people misinterpreted and then corrected themselves about. And now it's far more common to hear people say, oh, actually, it's uh, quite a hard-hitting song about social issues. It's like Fortunate Son is a song that absolutely everyone in the world understood when it came out, and it's taken us about 50, 60 years to become dumb enough to use it on the end credits of Battleship. Yeah, yeah, but the thing is, Graham, that the opening guitar riff sounds pretty cool. It does sound very badass, it's true, yeah. It gives you like a contact high of remembering all of the millions of better films that have used this song. God, is it the sympathy for the devil of crappy war films? Definitely, yes, yeah. You can tell whether something's like hit that mark by asking, is it used on the Tropic Thunder soundtrack? Because the Tropic Thunder soundtrack is a beautiful catalogue of the most dunderheadedly obvious songs to use on a Vietnam War movie. And you'd think that would parody it to death, but... Nope. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think that wraps it up for Battleship, a film that I am genuinely grateful to have seen. It, an entertaining time has come out of it. <laughs> and, and ideally with most films, that is while you are watching the film, but sometimes it's after. Sometimes it's, yeah, the, the previous hour has been it for us. But, you know, that's an hour's more entertainment than it has any right to give anyone. Exactly. 
but yes, if you enjoyed this show, uh, you can donate to our Patreon, where we have our other movie podcast, Director's Lottery. We have my Doctor Who reviews, and we have a bonus episode of this very show, Pop Screen, every month that you can't get anywhere else. Uh, this month, it's we're between a couple of things as we record. We hope we'll be able to make an announcement about what our Patreon exclusive is uh, by the time this goes out. But until next week, uh, that's been your lot from Pop Screen. I've been Graham. And I've been Andrew. And we'll see you next week with more of this. Mm-hmm.